what should be the right relationship between scientific inquiry and religious faith? Does Darwin's theory of evolution prove the Bible's account of creation to be wrong? Some say it does, in which case, how is it that a number of the world's leading scientific minds still find a place for God in their understanding of the world? My name is Mark Dowd, and exploring these questions with me today in Things Unseen, the programme for those of you who think there's more to life than the merely material, is the geneticist Professor Steve Jones. He's one of the UK's leading scientists, and his most recent book is The Serpent's Promise, The Bible Retold as Science. Steve, as a young boy when you grew up in Aberystwyth, was there any talk of God in the home or at school? Oh, I would say constantly, yes. I mean, I grew up in Aberystwyth in the 1950s, and that was the time when the chapel was absolutely at the centre of the community. And my grandparents, in particular, with whom we lived, as we didn't have much money, were deeply religious Protestants. They were Calvinistic Methodists and went every Sunday twice to chapel in Welsh, belonged to the choir, all this kind of stuff, and I was dragged along with them, so I was certainly had plenty of exposure. At what point in your life did you get the cognitive dissonance of they all think there's a supreme creator behind all of this in front of us, but I don't really quite buy into all this? It was an odd society, really, because if I look back on it, it really wasn't a religious society. It was a society that was bound together by shared rituals, which were actually rather attractive shared rituals, lots of music and that kind of stuff. Many people would just automatically assume that they would go to chapel. And my Welsh wasn't then sophisticated enough, never really became sophisticated enough to understand what they call chapel Welsh, which is full wheel, which is a Welsh word meaning a ship under full sail, where the preacher just stands there and orates. In all frankness, I'm not sure how many of of the 95% of people in the village who went to chapel were real believers. It was what they did, and that's what we did. And I I have no objection to it. I think it did me a lot of good. It gave me a great interest in music, for example. Um, But then when we moved to England, my parents insisted that I keep going to Welsh chapel, which was painful in its own right. And then I started turning into a biologist. And they seemed rather dissonant, and I didn't know the phrase then, but it's a phrase I often use which is the um, French astronomer Laplace was talking to Napoleon and Napoleon was looking at one of his books about the universe and Napoleon said to him, why is there no mention of God in this book? And the astronomer answered, I have no need for that hypothesis, which strikes me as the perfect answer because you can make a more or less mechanical model of the universe, of evolution of life, without that hypothesis. Now, if you want to take that hypothesis on board, by all means do. I have no objection to it. But I think most scientists don't need it. But there must have been at some point a real fight going on between the words you were being asked to say or the hymns you were being asked to sing and an evolving intellectual part of you thinking this is just all baloney. I think you have different levels of baloney. I mean, I have no objection to people who are believers and keep their beliefs to themselves, do not proselytize. I certainly object to the many people who deny the simple facts of science on the grounds of belief because, they, in fact, they do far more damage to their own religion than they do to my science. But I think you can keep them separate. I think the vast majority of school kids in Britain then and now do keep them separate. A lot of your energy has been directed at creationists and their account of you know, the natural world being created in at best a few thousand years as opposed to billions. In a sense, aren't they an easy target 
the whole straw man idea. And isn't there a case for God that stands way, way independent of that very narrow view of the world? Well, there are two different issues, really. I mean, the, the creationists are, are irritating, put it mildly. I get lots of mail from them, of course. And, and of course, worldwide, they're far more frequent than people who uh, take on board the theory of evolution. But as I say to my publishers, I don't mind if the creationists burn my books as long as they buy them first. But unfortunately, they don't show much signs of doing that. And that's the trouble. They don't, they're not interested. So they're doubly damned. (laughs) Exactly. They're doubly damned because not only don't they believe the established facts of science, they don't feel that they need even to know the established facts of science, in which case I just wash my hands of them. The argument between creation and science, or religion and science for that matter, is like a battle between um, a shark and a tiger. Now, they're both very powerful opponents, but only on their own territory. And I have to say that historically, it's much more the case that the shark of religion has strayed onto the the land where the tiger lives, of science, than the other way around. I think it's foolish to try and disprove the existence of God besides. I don't think you can. I think it's a meaningless thing to do. I don't think even the Dawkinses of this world would say they're trying to do that. But You've mentioned Richard Dawkins. Let's let's jump ahead a little bit. Richard Dawkins I interviewed for a program I made called Tsunami, Where Was God? Yeah. a number of years ago. And I said to Richard Dawkins, it's 10 seconds before you die and you have a small period of time in which you think maybe, just maybe, I didn't get this right. Is there any way that you might allow yourself a brief wobble at this point? And I put that question to you. Are you so certain? Or is there, however small, a door left open? Well, I mean, if you're a scientist, the, the worst thing you can possibly be if you're a scientist is certain, because if you're certain, you're no longer a scientist. Everything in science is uncertain. That's the definition of science. Unlike religion, where almost everything is certain. Um, um, I mean, you're asking me... And about you say that, but you know, Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Doubt is an absolutely central pillar well, of faith. All right, maybe to, the, uh, maybe to the grand figures of faith itself, but to the vast majority of believers, it's certainty. I mean, you ask any Islamic student about that. Uh, yeah, or certain believers. I'm a very doubt-filled believer. You were saying that you might leave the door open. No, I'm saying, I mean, that's Pascal's wager, isn't it? I mean, uh, you may as well make the bet because there might be a big man with a white beard waiting behind the pearly gates. I think I'd probably be sufficiently an extremist within five seconds of dying not to think of that. No, I don't think I would. It would seem to me foolish. When I interviewed Richard Dawkins, when the filming had finished, he said to me on the way out of his Oxford house... Grand house, I remember. (laughs) He said, why do you believe in God? You seem rather intelligent as though somehow intelligence and faith were in the battle with one another. I said, Richard, I've met far too many people in my life who have a sense of the peace that surpasses all understanding, and it seems to be always rooted in a sense of religious faith and spirituality, holiness, if you like, and I very rarely encountered that amongst atheists. And he said to me, I know what you mean. Well, I don't know what you mean, really. I mean, I'm a very ordinary, good, second-rate scientist, which gives me a great deal of comfort. And my feeling about science, and I feel it with some passion, actually, is that science is the heaven for the mediocre. In other words, any fool can do science. If you watch five-year-old children playing, they are doing science. They're building sandcastles, looking at the rate at which the, uh, it settles down and that kind of stuff. They're doing scientific experiments. And there's something 
deeply satisfying about being a five-year-old. And you don't have to be a particularly smart five-year-old. You can just be a five-year-old. And the, the same is true with science. Anybody can do it. And if you continue to learn more and more, then you get a great, to me at least, you get a great inner feeling of satisfaction. In a sense, I would never imagine feeling if you had to know the unknowable. What's the point of knowing the unknowable? Well, it's logical impossibility, isn't it? But it's the kind of thing they talk about. I mean, when I wrote this Serpent's Promise book, I was quite rattled by the responses. Now, I say at the beginning of the book, which is true, that I am, in fact, an atheist. But if you look, first of all, at the Bible as a work of literature, it's a magnificent work of literature. Nobody could possibly deny that. And secondly, if you look at it, particularly the Old Testament, as a historical account of events that in some form happened, it's it's clearly true that many of the events in some form happened during that period. I mean, some of them are obvious, like the Great Flood, and there's abundant evidence of many great floods at that time. Some are more subtle, like Leviticus's obsession with cleanliness and leprosy. So why was Leviticus so concerned by this? And the answer was Leviticus was written by the Levites about 3,000 years ago, a bit more, at about the time when big cities began to emerge and people began to move around much more than they had before, which is what sparks off epidemics. So if you're living at that time and suddenly this unknown horror this plague indeed, literally, comes to hound you, it is a perfectly logical deduction in the mindset of that time to say that's God's punishment. And I would understand that mindset. But now we know that leprosy and plague are not God's punishment. They're due to bacilli. Or if the chosen people of God, if you're down to 1,200 people, dodgy pork and dodgy seafood in a world of no refrigeration are, for understandable reasons, off limits. Yeah, Yes, that's true. But the response to the book, I found very startling. I mean, the one which startled me, and many people, many religious people, including somebody like Sam Berry, R.J. Berry, who hired me at UCL many years ago, and is a very religious person, and a very nice person to whom I owe a lot. He was outraged. They were outraged because they said, you shouldn't have written this. You can't write a book like this. And I said, well, why not? And he says, they say, well, because the Bible isn't about facts. It's about metaphor and myth and ideas. And I said, well, what about the Great Flood? And they say, oh, no, no, the water doesn't matter. And I said, well, what about the Ark? Um, no, the Ark is irrelevant. So I said, well, what's the flood legend about? And one of the responses was, it's obvious. It's about one man's unique relationship to God. And I thought, you know, I'd rather write about geology, which is what I did. <laughs> But you mentioned the Bible there, and interestingly, you've said that the New Testament, not the Old Testament, the New Testament, minus the miracles, would be the best political tract ever written. That was Actually, Thomas Jefferson said that. Okay, but I mean, you, do you endorse that? I mean, in some senses, yes. In my own book, pathetic as it is, I put much more emphasis on the Old Testament simply because it is basically a look backwards into history. That's what it is, and definition of who the Jews are and who they aren't. And all those questions are amenable to scientific inquiry, or many of them are. The New Testament is a much more interesting book to me because it looks forward as to the way we ought to live. And there are eccentricities in it about walking on water and so on. But that to me is just, that's just clutter that gets in the way. But the funny thing the, is in your book, you find a place for miracles, not miracles as the suspension of the laws of nature and funny things happening against science, but miracles almost as coincidences serendipity. Um, and I just find it surprising that as a you know rationalist and as a, a scientist that you still allow that kind of space because part of it is like 
Why do those things happen? Well, they happen. I mean, I have a section in that last chapter about visions and, and that kind of stuff. And it would be foolish to say that all religious visions are mental disorders. I mean, that's an infantile argument. But it's very hard to deny that some of them are. Famously, Hildegard of Bingen, who, as well as being a saint and a deeply religious person, of course, was a fantastic early composer of church music. She describes her visions as of glowing circles and burning coals exploding and sketches they're sketched. And they're exactly like, precisely like, the visions that somebody with migraine has when they have one of these uh, one of these scotomas, as they're called, that block the visual field, which actually I get rather mildly, as many, many people do. It doesn't go any beyond that. But one also could argue that why draw such a polarized distinction between it's either divine inspiration or it's this funny thing with the brain. Can't God who created the world work occasionally through people who are, quotes, mad? Oh, well, without doubt. I mean, I mean, you have to be slightly mad to make an impact on the world, to stand out from the crowd, to to be countercultural. But I mean, an awful lot, and again, this is very familiar stuff, but an awful lot of religious exercises of different kinds in different religions are designed to lead to mild or sometimes quite severe brain activity. One of the reasons why it's such good fun to stand up in chapel and sing is, of course, you, if you're singing with passion, you're blowing off carbon dioxide and therefore you're getting a change in mood, which you can um, interpret, if you wish, as the define flatus, but it isn't. You can do the same thing by, by panting in and out. When you say that the New Testament minus the miracles is a stunning political document or quoting Jefferson on that, does that mean to some extent, you are quite a big admirer of Jesus. Of some of the statements, yes. I mean, the last chapter of my book is called Unto Others, and that is the biggest question. If you look at us as a primate, and we are indeed primates, we are extraordinarily strange because we live in large and generally peaceful communities, not always peaceful, but pretty peaceful. And in fact, our way of life as modern humans is much closer to that of seagulls than it is of any other mammal. Okay, In other words, we live in large colonies where people are more or less paired in permanent pairs, and there's a bit of squabbling, but there are not huge bloody wars within the colony. You look at chimpanzees, and the opposite is true. And so there is something which sets us aside. I teach a lot at UCL, and I enjoy doing it. And UCL is the, famously the godless college of Gower Street. It was set up specifically against Oxford and Cambridge because there was a religious test to get into Oxford and Cambridge. Of course, you as a Catholic would not have got in, but we'd have welcomed you. We were so oppressed, you know. <laughs> yes. But I get a lot of pain from students who email me, often very hurt, that I'm insulting their religion, Islamic students in particular. And I have a lecture called, Is Man Just Another Animal? Okay. And this typical 55-minute boring lecture. But it goes through the physical similarities between humans and other creatures, which are overwhelming. I mean, you cannot deny a close kinship. Um, there are some very strange things. If you look at humans and chimpanzees, compare them to our common ancestor. If you look at many of the things which now separate us, we have lost powers that chimpanzees have kept. For example, uniquely in the history of life, we are the only creature that cannot live on raw food alone. Our stomach is small, our guts are tiny. We have to have an external stomach, a deep fat fryer or a microwave, and that's just bizarre. But then at the end of this lecture, I say, look, all right, in all boring respects, Darwinian man, though well-behaved, is nothing but a monkey shaved, as Gilbert and Sullivan put it. But you stand back. We're unique because we have a whole set of attributes that no other animal 
has got anything like a sense of history, deep history, a concern about the future, a willingness to uh, be kind to people who aren't our relatives, a curiosity about what lies behind the world, which is a genuine curiosity. No animal has any of that. So to me, the theory of evolution doesn't make me feel less human than I used to. It doesn't drag me down to the level of the apes. It puts me entirely apart from the apes. And that's where I think the consensus between religion and science ought to live. And I'm not sure that it yet does. What you were saying is that altruism doesn't exist in the rest of the animal kingdom. Altruism is a slippery word. There is altruism in the sense that you will help your kin. I think the altruism in the sense that you will specifically help somebody who is not related to you and would die without your help, and you'd help them even at your own risk. That's fairly uniquely human, I think. And that is the essence of the Jesus take of the world, is. which is that you don't it look is. after your tribe, don't look after your family, even the, the smug hypocrites do as much. I tell you, you've got to look after the Samaritans yeah. and the people on the no, margins I agree. I agree. of society. I mean, what's interesting is, of course, if you go into Genesis, all the way through Genesis, and a long way further into the Old Testament, there's not a bleeding sign of altruism anywhere, I can tell you. It's bloody war, and it's the Jews versus the rest. You're making a very well, convincing case for New Testament Christianity, if you don't mind me saying so. Maybe I am. I mean, I'm making a convincing case for some of the ideas of New Testament Christianity, and I think it'd be very hard for somebody with a Western mindset not to do that. The question I always ask myself, why do people who are deeply believing Christians, and many of them are extremely good people, why do they need the Bible to be a good person? I like to think that I'm a good person. I do all the obvious good person things, um, but I'm not a believer. But somehow these people need an alibi, and I'm not sure I need one. You've said, I think, in your book that rather pessimistically, the secular... West, Western Europe, is a part of the world where religious belief seems to be on the decline. But the places where population patterns are expected to increase are the very parts of the world where religion is hot. That's true. How do you see that playing out? Well, I don't know, really. It's a very strange thing. I mean, I spent a fair amount of time in Africa. The interesting thing is, if you look across the globe, population is without question growing. But across nearly all the globe, there's been this thing in the last 50 years called the demographic transition, where we've moved from high death rates and high birth rates. First of all, the death rate comes down, then the birth rate follows it down. And now in the West, we're at low birth and low death rates. Okay. Now, that's true amazingly almost everywhere. But the big exception is sub-Saharan Africa. And the mean completed family size now in a country like Nigeria is five. Okay. In Britain, it's 2.1. In Italy, it's 1.3. It's declining, the mean completed family size, but very slowly in Africa. And if you project into the future, it's clearly the case that by 2050, Africans will be the biggest single ethnic group, if you want to call it that, in the world. And population pressure, as has always happened, will force people to move. And that's beginning to happen now. Now, what was quite likely to happen then is that Christianity will move with them. And what is also striking in the case is that people who are believers, particularly Christian believers, tend to have a higher reproductive rate than non-believers. So I think if you are religious, or if you're a Christian at least, you should be optimistic about the future of Christianity. But you're probably being optimistic for the wrong reasons, because with the optimism comes the overpopulation. This is really fascinating, because, I mean, you're an expert on evolution and Darwin. Does faith and religion in evolutionary strength terms give one a natural advantage for survival, either individually or as a group? There's a lot of argument about that. I never really got it straight in my own mind. I mean, if you look at the beginnings of the modern world, by which I mean the origin of farming, it's pretty clear 
that religion, in the sense that many of us know it, where we have an alert and powerful God who is keeping an eye on every one of his subjects and will either punish or praise or save those who behave badly or well. Those ideas are more or less confined to people who are or were farmers. But as soon as you get this explosion in the Middle East, 10,000 years ago, massive increase in population. It's immediately followed by the first cities, by the first defensive walls, by the first empires, by the first interpopulation wars, and by a huge population explosion, which has brought genes from the Middle East into Britain. Something like 30% of British genes come from that population explosion. And with that explosion came formal religion. Now, I think that was likely to happen in the future is the answer. When I made that documentary about the tsunami, I attended a Vatican conference on God and natural evil, where I met some of the most talented physicists in the world, many of whom had actually come round to be believers late in their lives. Do you have a respect for their position? Do you simply say, it's not my choice, but I respect the fact that they can combine their scientific inquiry with their faith? Or do you think, deluded, they're just wrong? I don't respect it, but I don't resent it. You're free to believe what you wish to believe in. I mean, if you wish to believe in heavenly gates, metaphorically or otherwise, feel free to do so. The problem then arises, but if you happen to be not a Christian, let's say, but if you're a part of radical Islam, your belief is that other people should be converted by the sword. And that's a belief that impinges on me. Well, some Muslims think that. Many don't. Well, I mean, if you want to pick out the appropriate quotations from the Koran, Let's end this with just reverting back to that interview I did with Richard Dawkins again. I, I paraphrase what he said to me. I'll never forget this. I was amazed it didn't get more publicity at the time. He said, the kind of God I could believe in is a God who sets up the laws of nature, a God who established the very ground of physics. Yes, that's the kind of God I really could subscribe to, but he's not remotely the kind of God who'd be interested in answering the old prayer or two. It sounds like you wouldn't no, I, believe I, in that I, God. No, I wouldn't. I mean, I've heard Richard say that. And again, do you need that kind of God? I don't. That's a fitting point, I think, to bring this fascinating exchange to an end. My sincere thanks to Professor Steve Jones, author of The Serpent's Promise, uh, for his time here today. And my name is Mark Dowd, and you've been listening to Things Unseen, which is a CTVC production. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.